Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to helping business owners to prepare for exit so that you can maximize value and exit on your terms. This is the Exit Insight podcast presented by Succession Plus. I'm Daryl Bates-Brownsword, and today I'm talking to Jenny Lau from iLaw. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks for sharing, uh, joining me today on the podcast. What would be a great start is if you just give us a little bit of a background about yourself and your area of expertise, because I think we've got something pretty interesting here today. Hi, Daryl. Thanks for inviting me today. I'm really pleased to join you. Um, so I'm coming from looking at this from a slightly different angle to your usual guest. Um, I, my background, I'm a litigation lawyer. Um, in fact, I specialise in international arbitration and commercial litigation. Um, I've got a city background. I trained and, and qualified at Phil Fisher and practised there for, for many years, uh, eventually ending up here at iLaw, which is a, a small a boutique practice. We focus very much on technology um, businesses. Um, and we like to say, you know, we, we um, work with innovators in business and in, in their specific fields. I, my practice is very broad, it's very varied, but what I tend to deal with and what I see a lot of are um, commercial disputes uh, relating to, you know, shareholders, joint ventures, um, and often the fallout um, from uh, owners exiting their businesses. Um, and all the other issues that can arise um, from that type of situation. So, yeah, look, so when business owners, I guess, don't prepare for exit, they're a risk of fallout. And um, if there's fallout disputes, that's when we need you to uh, help us out. Yeah, that's when I get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, my mind's just racing ahead because there must be a million stories. There are so many things to get it wrong. Uh. Um, and yeah, one of the, the you know, things that we, one of the reasons we say to business owners that they do need to prepare for exit is that a, they need to make their business more attractive because so many businesses that go to market, you know, that don't actually get sold. But uh, you're looking at the flip side of the risk is I guess if we do get sold and we're underprepared or we're, we're misrepresenting, I guess, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but, but what are some of the things that can go wrong? I, I guess, uh, you know, yeah, we don't want a list of names, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you know, hiding the names. But what what are some of the sort of things that can get go wrong when when you know um, owners sell their business and uh, need to call you in? Well, you know, there's such a huge variety of different types of disputes, and often it's it's really that there's a real link to why an owner is exiting a business in the first place. So you know, when a case comes across my desk, sometimes I can pick it up as early as the due diligence stage. When I'm looking at, you know, we, we might have a buyer or a seller um, and I'm working with the corporate guys to look at the papers as part of the due diligence process and to make sure that the warranties they give are not so, are, are wide enough to be useful to a buyer, but not so wide that they're going to end up in trouble once they've sold or, or once uh, your buyer's bought your company. Um, and then, you know, when you tie up to warranties, you've also got indemnities because often, as you know, you've got a, you have a situation where you might have a claim that's pending or some sort of a issue or investigation going on that your buyer might ask you for some sort of indemnity. And that's another area that's ripe for dispute after a business has been sold. One of the other issues that we often see are, um, again, you know, 
what does the owner want to do? So is the owner selling the business because the owner's retiring, for example? Or is the owner selling the business because they've had enough or they want to push the business to the next level? Now, why is that relevant? Well, you might have things to consider such as, I don't know, golden handcuffs or restrictive covenants. And that's another area that I really get involved with. And I see quite a lot, actually, where you might have, in fact, one particular case springs to mind, a very young lawyer then, and um, a business that had started very small, had been um, taken through and grown successfully, and then eventually purchased by quite a big buyer. Um, and the owner at the time decided, decided that he'd had enough of the business and he wanted to, to move on and start a new venture. Unfortunately, um, the new venture happened to be very similar to the old venture. You can see where I'm going with this. Um, and he took a very nice, um, pay, very nice purchase price, which obviously came with a very um, strong restrictive covenant. And these two things go hand in hand. And yep. um, we got involved when the buyer got a little bit upset about the new business that was being set up. And that turned into quite a contentious um, dispute. It ended up you know, incurring lots of lawyers' fees, completely destroying that relationship really actually damaging um, both the, the buyer's um, yeah, the, the buyer's view of the, the business that it purchased, but also really affecting the seller's new project and the seller's um, progress in that market going forward. So you're really important issues that have to be considered here. So the warning there being that uh, if you do exit your business and you've made all sorts of warranties and, and, and promises of, of you know, your restrictions of what you can move into, especially if you're a high profile name or reputation in the industry, then either you're doing some sort of earnout, and you know, with the, the company, or if you're not doing an earnout, I guess there's, there's always some sort of restriction of, of how long before you can re enter the industry. So um, just be aware yeah. of what you're committing to, I, I guess, is the big warning there. Absolutely. And the one thing that, uh, which will uh, no doubt will come on to later on is that you've got to remember that selling your business and the rules around, you know, earnouts, um, covenants, all these obligations, the laws surrounding those areas are different to the way they apply to employees. So what you'll hear is a lot, a lot of people will say to you, well, restrictive covenants, we know the, the, the English law around that. Um, it's all got to be reasonable and it can't be longer than six months, et cetera, et cetera. But that applies to employees. When you're looking at an owner selling their business for a very hefty purchase price, it's a completely different ballgame. All adds up as to why you want to uh, prepare and, and, and know where you stand uh, ahead of time. Absolutely. So, so you've, you've, you've mentioned the golden handcuffs and, and earnouts uh, a couple of times there. So I'm going to ask a question, and it's probably an unfair question, but you know what the heck? I know it's on top of uh, all of our listeners' minds. In, one of the things that we like to do when we're working with businesses is go, look, if you get your business exit ready, if you prepare your business for exit, you can minimize the requirements for an earnout or, or golden handcuffs because you've effectively reduced the risk of the likelihood of ongoing revenues and their dependence on you being there. So the question that is possibly unfair is, is it possible to structure a deal without any earnout or without any golden handcuffs and get all of the money up front. I've seen it before. Yeah, absolutely. It is possible. I have seen it before. 
Um, but in that sort of situation, it requires, I think, I feel a strong um, relationship of trust between the seller and the buyer. So often where, where I have seen it, um, often see it with um, relationships where they've either worked together before um, or um, very well-known reputation in the market. Um, that, that type of situation, I, I see it less where you're looking at a, a smaller a privately owned business where you have um, either just an interested buyer um, who have came to the market with a particular set of conditions and then found a business that met that criteria um, without any prior relationship uh, between the parties. Often, uh, I think, and this is where you're, you're talking about, so you know, deferred consideration I see quite often, um, which is perhaps one way of dealing with the problem. So having, um, instead of having an earn out or golden handcuffs, you have a small you know, payment in, in installments, which doesn't really help the business owner um, in some ways uh, because of the risk uh, of you know, claims again and withholding of the deferred consideration, which of course is another area that I see a lot of. Yeah. And, and our approach is, to go, hey, look, if you want to exit on your terms, you've got to get your business exit ready. And the reason we do that is, or one of the many reasons, is, is, is just over the years of working with business owners, I've just seen too many of them exit their business, they do a deal, it, it, it has some sort of earn-out agreement in there. Um, they go, oh, yeah, this sounds good. As soon as the new owners come in, in some, you know, less, you know, yeah, uh, scrupulous buyers, they change the rules straight away. So all of a sudden, it's impossible for the owner to, to achieve their earn out because the rules have changed. So one reason we want to reduce those and have the business prepared is to reduce that requirement. The other one is you just see business owners who their energy has changed. They, they agree the earn out, it all sounds good. Yeah, I can be an employee for three years, but they start working for the new boss and they just can't. You know, you know, yeah. their, their mind's already raced ahead. They're, they're on the beach in, in wherever it is or what, yeah. you know, they've just moved on. And they're going, Absolutely. I just can't do this. And they yeah. end up leaving and leave a whole lot of cash on the table. And that's, you know, they're the two uh -huh. big situations that we're looking to prevent or, or mitigate. The, yeah, the I've, I've seen both and I've dealt with both. In fact, the first one is always very difficult. Um, we did, we did um, an arbitration American buyer actually um, in that situation. Um, that was an arbitration case where we had exactly scenario that, that you um, described. Um, the second one also we, we see as well, and then if I may add a third group, which is um, a, a third scenario, which I've seen a few times, where you have the owner who remains as an employee or as an employee, but gets very upset because the direction of the business changes with the new buyer. Yeah. And that's very contentious. That becomes very difficult. Um, and you know, for any buyers thinking about this, um, the thinking about these issues, uh, I can assure you that the the seller, whilst an employee, can still create um, some very difficult situations to be dealt with, both for the seller and and for the for the owner. And it, what it what it does is it takes what could be a very positive relationship and just destroys um, any trust. Um, and confidence between the parties and that only ends negatively, I think, for all parties concerned. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And we've got to, you know, I guess, 
you've got to manage the energy and get the, the owners mentally, energetically prepared to move on to something else and recognize that, you know, they may have built this, this thing up. It may be like their baby. It may be their whole identity and, and livelihood. But if they're selling it, they've got to be moving on. They're, they've got to recognize that they no longer call the shots. You know, yeah. They are just an employee now and, and it's, they've lost, they've given up, they've handed over control. And, uh, yeah. and that's a big deal, isn't it, for, for many business owners? And uh, It's so, very difficult. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and what's quite interesting, again, you, a couple of years ago, I saw a case where the buyer, not only was there a change of direction, but the buyer felt that the seller had not run the operations um, appropriately or in the most effective manner. Um, and that was very difficult. And it was a very difficult case to resolve because actually, even though the difference between the parties it not, was not very large, the difficulty was that the emotional engagement between the parties uh, became such a stumbling block that, again, you know, it's very difficult to resolve these because they can become a matter of a point of pride yes, as opposed to anything else. Yeah, I could imagine the owner, the, the founder, would feel like it's a personal attack. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I remember, you know, being in that situation and, and him explaining this, that he felt that it was a personal attack um, on, on him and his ability as a business owner. Yeah. So, Jenny, have you got any gut feel as to um, how often this happens, that, 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 that deals go bad or, or become contentious? You know, is it got any gut feel on percentage of deals? Or, or just Ooh, that's a that's a difficult question yeah, and look I'm, I'm mastering the unfair questions today <laughs> um I, I think to be fair um that's a really hard question to answer um i see i think there are i think there are fallouts more often than people realize um i'd struggle to put a percentage on it but what happens, um, a lot of people do not see the early stage disputes that can be very, very contentious, but resolved quite early on without the need um, to progress into a litigious environment. Um, and so I, I do feel that it happens more often than, than people might think, often around deferred consideration, um, breach of warranties. You know, I see lots and lots of breach of warranty claims come through. Um, people feeling that they've bought a bad bargain um, and that's really to do with preparation, as you were saying, you know, the seller not having prepared the company sufficiently so that when your buyer comes in um, or presenting a particular picture, the buyer feels cheated on, for want of a better word, um, once they get in and actually get access to all of the papers and, and, and go through all the paperwork. But it's, it's, it's more common than you think, um, but hard to put a percentage on. I've ducked to that question, I think. I think I, I did that quite successfully. <laughs> I think you've done that well, yeah. You gave us something, but not everything. Have you thought of going into politics? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, a, lawyer, a lawyer being a politician, I can't think of anything worse. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so we, we've, we, you've, you've alluded to the fact that, you know, there, there are some things that, you know, you could prevent it and, and there could be some flags or warning signs so what should the, the owners and or the buyers be looking for from both sides of some of the red flags to help avoid these uh, potential flare-ups down the track? One thing I would say is do your due diligence, both as a seller and both as the buyer. 
Um, and then it's, it sounds a funny thing to say for the seller, but I mean, the number of transactions I've seen involving, you know, SMEs, um, you know, small private sales, very difficult to value the company. Um, but a lot of these where we have issues later on are all instances where either the due diligence has been rushed um, or it hasn't been done at all. So what happens is, for example, the buyer asks a question, the seller says, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, look, here's, here's some information. Here is some information. It's all fine. It's all been fine. And the bank is okay. Or, you know, we've never had an issue before. And the buyer says, fine, you know, let, let's get on with it. And I think for if you're a seller, if you do not want to have that issue hanging over your head the next you know, six years, if you have a normal limitation period, or one or two years, if you have a, a, a specific limitation period put in your SPA, then do the exercise properly. I know it's difficult and annoying, and there might be information that you don't really want to share, but the whole point is to work with a consultant like you know, Daryl's team, who will help you go through that information and pick out the areas of weaknesses so that when you're asked, you can say, well, actually, funny you've asked that, here's a pack of information that sets out the situation, and at least you know where you stand and the buyer knows where you stand. And so when you come to negotiate your warranties, at least you know, you're know you giving a warranty that you can actually give. Yeah. And hopefully you'll be less worried for the next two years wait, you know, want, waiting for someone to spot the issue and come back to you. And the other thing I would say is that just again, you know, working, being very honest with, with the people you work with, with the team that you work with, be it your legal team or your, um, you know, your preparation team, it's actually think about that there are practices that might be normal, sensible, or, you know, perfectly acceptable for a small family run business or for a small business when you started out. But actually, when we look at an independent buyer, the independent buyer might not be so happy with those practices. So you've got to pick them up early on and actually spend a little bit of time before you take your company to market, just dealing with those issues, getting them clarified and sorted out. So what am I thinking about? Um, one particular case I dealt with um, several years ago, you, how you put sales on the books. You know, people might not want to talk about information. Like that. Everyone says they, they don't do it. Nobody does this. Um, but let's be honest with ourselves, there may be instances where sales may have been put through in a way that looking back, um, you may not have chosen to do in that particular way. So instead of sitting on it and hoping nobody picks it up, you might as well deal with it before you take your company to market to correct your accounts, which you can do very easily. Yeah. With the help of an appropriate professional, get your accounts corrected and tidied up, then take it to the market. Yeah. So you're only going to do this once in, in many, many occasions. Um, if you've built the business up, it's worth doing it right, which we can sit here and go, well, yeah, if you only do it once, do it properly. But there'll be, because it's something that only happens once in a, in a career, I'm, I'm guessing there's still a stack of business owners out there. Well, there must be because they just don't know. They, they just don't know that they need to, you know, that all these risks are actually risks. So how do we educate the marketplace as a whole to go, look, guys, these are risks when it comes to selling your business. And with a little bit of work and preparation, you can mitigate a lot of these risks right up front. 
And, you know, and because as you were saying, you know, there, there's kind of, if not, you you once you've sold the business, you, you've still got this noose around your neck potentially for six years while you, you just open. And yeah, always looking over your shoulder. Yeah. Uh, and I guarantee you, okay, with breach of warranty claims. So what, what you find with the SPAs when you give your, as you know, Dal, when you give your warranties under your SPA, normally you, your lawyer will try and negotiate um, limitation down to maybe one or two years. And you and you know, Dal, you and I both know that the notification always comes, a potential breach of warranty claim will always come on the day before or the last day of your limit. That's just the way um, life works. And so can you, you know, if you're selling your business in order to go to the beach or retire or do something new and exciting, there's nothing worse than getting to your last day and thinking, great, end of the, you know, the one year limitation period, I'm gonna get the last installment of my purchase price today. And that notice hits, you know, hits your doormat through the post. Um, and that's an awful, awful feeling. And I can assure you that the money and the aggro spent dealing with lawyers, legal costs afterwards, um, all of the money that a, a business owner, a, a seller might feel that they're saving by not preparing or not doing the due diligence or engaging the proper experts early on. I can assure you, if there's an issue, you'll probably spend that and more yeah. dealing later on. So, so Jenny, it's just hit me. We're sitting here talking about warranties and, and warranting against your business in, in a transaction type sense. And I'm just guessing, I'm, I'm having a punt here, that I might there might be a number of business owners listening to this and going, oh, well, that makes sense. I haven't thought about that. Now, what specifically, in simple terms, are we you know, providing a warranty against? Can you, can you share some sort of just at a really... Um, basic sort of level for, for us who uh, don't deal with it every day. Uh, sure. Um, in fact, one of the one of the points I, I highlighted that I had to make sure that I made that I reminded your listeners of today, Dara, is to, to always understand the warranty warranties and covenants that you are giving in your SPA and the consequences of giving them. Um, really, really important. So when uh, you know when when um, selling your business. You do your due diligence um, and there'll be certain um, warranties that you have to give. So, for example, it could be as simple as um, as basic as um, your accounts have been um, prepared in accordance with the relevant accounting rules. So these are you know, these are assertions and statements, representations that a seller makes about the status and condition of their business or different aspects of their business, um, which a buyer will rely on when they set the purchase price for that deal and when they close that deal. Um, and it, they are clearly written out in the SPA. And if you have a breach of warranty, so you make a representation that later turns out to not be true, then the buyer will, um, will point to that warranty and um, take action against the seller on the back of it. Is that? Yeah. Is that and just to really spell things out, SPA stands for. I'm oh, sorry, sell and purchase agreement. Yeah, just because it's you know for, for people who don't do it every day, uh, I've got to ask the you know really get down. Okay, so a lot of the the issues we've been talking about so far have been between you know the buyer and the seller and and something um, unfolding down the track that that well I guess neither expected to happen well hopefully neither expected to happen in in the best case scenario. And, and addressing that. What about between shareholders? Do you get involved in issues, you know, when, when shareholders have a falling out and what could that look like? What are some of the warning signs there 
that uh, business owners should be preparing against. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I, I deal with that quite a lot, actually. I, I deal with that quite a lot. Um, and often um, we're looking at a variety of shareholder, what I, I always refer to as shareholder disputes. Um, and I've seen shareholder disputes in tiny companies, um, you know, two shareholders, um, and I've also dealt with them and seen them in very large um, companies involving yeah. 20, 30 shareholders. Um, often it can be a real variety um, of issues. Uh, often it can be um, one shareholder slash um, uh, director or shareholder slash director um, who's losing interest in the business and wants to take it into a different direction. Um, and so that can all, uh, create, start to create some friction in the relationship um, and can lead to a situation where you might have a deadlock or a stalemate where decisions can't be made by the company. Um, or you may have one shareholder wanting to sell their shares or, or, or sell the company as a whole in order to get to maximize value of the business. Um, and the other one wants to hold on to the business, but and there'll be you know aggravation and, and, and arguments about how that's dealt with. Um, I'm dealing with one um dealt with one recently, shareholder disputes where you have just standard, you know, direct shareholder not behaving well. Um, we call them, you know, often we have majority minority shareholder disputes. So, for example, where the majority of the shareholders want to take the company in one particular direction, um, and it can be a series of behaviour which are which um, in legal jargon unfairly prejudices the minority shareholders. So it's conduct which um, unfairly affects the rights of the minority in the business. So the best example would be, for example, um, maybe issuing shares that dilute the shareholdings mm -hmm. of the minority shareholders or somehow the majority forcing through resolutions that will um, affect the voting rights of minority shareholders. Yeah, so something like that. So I guess this happens in situations where, you know, the, the business, I don't know, I'm making stuff up, you know, it's been going for a while. You've got a number of shareholders that are, I guess, the founding shareholders, which hold the bulk of the shareholding. And then there's new shareholders that have come in and, and perhaps are very minor percentages in, in proportion. And... They, they, they're not being treated fairly and, and equitably and, uh, and yeah, therefore disputes rise from there. Yeah, or they feel that they're not. Um, there is always a feel that they're not. Um, absolutely. And you know, actually, Darryl, you remind me of something else, which is um, quite an interesting scenario I saw a few years ago, which is what I've also seen happen where um, founding, um, so the founding shareholders become minority shareholders, so they sell the majority of their stake in order to get investment into the business, and they retain a small, um, small shareholding because they want to keep, um, they want to maintain their involvement in the business. And what in that scenario, it was quite difficult actually to manage because the owner shareholder, sorry, the, the founding shareholder became very upset about the direction that the business was going into. Um, but unfortunately, because he had become a minority shareholder, there was nothing that he could do about it or, or, or nothing, um, 
real substantial that he could do about it. Um, and as a minority shareholder, what often happens is you end up, if you cannot resolve it um, amicably or, or you know, with your lawyers, um, if you end up in court, you, you issue um, what's called a, an unfair prejudice petition if you say that you've been treated unfairly. Um, and what often happens, not always, what often happens is the court will just ask the majority to buy the minority out. So that's really difficult. If you're a, you're a, if, if the business is your baby and you end up a minority shareholder and you don't like the direction the company's going in, it's quite hard to take back control of the business. Absolutely. And and it's it's an emotional roller coaster, I imagine, because you're so attached to it and you you know, you've been doing it for so many years, you think you know the best direction, who are these new owners? But then on the flip side, you've got these new owners, you, well, you chose these, these people to buy the business, you did the deal with them because what they represented was, was the future of the business. Um, but yeah, I guess it's like um, when your kid grows up and leaves home and yeah. uh, has their own life and, you know, starts making decisions and, you know, votes for a different political party than you do. Yeah, I mean that's a great that's a great analogy. That's absolutely right. It's just being able to divorce the emotion um, from from the business. It's it is very difficult, um, and these are very these can be extremely emotional disputes. You know, and lots of he said, she said. Um, you, you do have to try your best to focus very much on the commercial and um, considerations, commercial aspects. Well, I imagine, I think you've touched on it, haven't you? Like, and I guess it's like all of life. It's always getting that balance between commercial and, and cultural issues. And, and the commercial argument is always the tangible stuff and the, and the argument we put out you know, in, the, in the, the public space. But what's behind that and what's driving it is always emotional and, and someone's feelings are being hurt or upset. Um, and, you know, and the only way they know how to, to express that is through this commercial argument and they'll find a legal clause to go to, to justify their, their upset effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these disputes um, are often, you're right, are often driven, um, perhaps not always, you know, the emotional um, side, the emotional reasoning forms a large part of that process. Um, yeah, it's it, it's it's certainly very it's a real eye opener. I think over the years dealing with some of the some of the the cases that we see come through the door. Yeah, so I guess trying to pull it all together here from uh, my perspective, it sounds like most of these things that you've talked about today could have been avoided if you know we'd done our homework up front, if we'd prepared, we'd we'd. You know, we, we typically know what the skeletons are in our closet, and if we'd been upfront and honest about them and just put them out there, you know, an ounce of prevention is is you know heaps better than the cure. I, there's a saying that goes something like that, I think. Um, but yeah, if we if we we deal with it all up front, that's probably the best way to to mitigate. Um, if we have to tidy up some financials, you know, we need to prepare all of those in advance. Um, but then if we've done everything we possibly can, I guess we still need, you know, there's potentially some insurance or that, that uh, we could take out um, and just have the name of uh, you know, a Jenny Lau in our <laughs> black book just in case and keep it there for six years. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what, um, there's um, some of the, there's never any harm um, 
with your you know, getting a litigator, um, yeah, as I say, as, as a very junior lawyer, I used to do it um, for some of our corporate guys um, in the firm that I trained in. Just whoever your legal team or, or your, you know, your, your expert team um, to help you prepare for sale um, might be, there's never any harm in asking them to get one of their litigation colleagues to just cast their eye over a couple of elements. You know, if you're worried about a situation that you're trying to resolve before you get your pack ready, to, to approach the market to sell your business, just ask a litigator to take a look at it because they'll be able to say to you, you know, that, that, you know and, and give you a, a, some guidance on what you need to be worried about or what you need to might want to fix before you go to the market, what you, you know, what you should or should not share um, in, the, in the sales process. Um, and there's it, never any harm in looking at that. So, so what I took from that is get the, the litigator to have a look at it and you know, if the litigator takes a sharp intake of breath, then you know that you know, if they don't say anything else, but you know there's something there that you need to sort out quick. Yeah, <laughs> a traffic light system. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and that, you know, I'm taking that as today's top tip because you know, we do our due diligence, we get our governance in order, but hang on a sec, Let, let's just take it an extra, you know, extra step. You know, it's a once in a lifetime thing. We don't wanna you know, be looking over our shoulder um, and for a little bit of expense up front, we'll get someone to spend a couple of hours on it from a litigation perspective and just going, look, here's a, a, a protection exercise. What do I have to do? And it, it'll give me peace of mind. And, and what I like about what you said there is there'll be some things where you say, actually, don't include that. You don't need to include that. But what about this? Do you need to put something in there about this? Um, and so that would be time and money really well spent. Um, to protect your value, protect your, your investment. Absolutely, absolutely. Don't rush anything. Don't yeah. rush, yeah. make sure you prepare. And it, yeah, as everything, it's, it's planning, 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 um, and get on the front foot. If you want to exit on your terms, we've got to be on the front foot. Hey, Jenny, one of the things I ask everyone who comes on the show, can put you in the hot seat, ask you another unfair question, but I think you've, you know, just from everything we've shared today, What's the number one message that you want listeners to uh, walk away, uh, you know, learning, hearing, understanding from this uh, conversation we've had? I think from my perspective, it's, oh, that is a difficult question, actually. There's so much I want to say. Um, from, from my perspective, I think it's very much about taking your time to understand what it is that you want out of the situation. Um, always taking your time to um, prepare the plan and also making sure that before you sign anything, you fully understand what you're signing up to and the consequences of the words you know, in the sale and purchase agreement. Don't just sign something because you want the deal to be done tomorrow. Make sure you understand everything you've just signed up for. That is wisdom beyond years, Jenny. <laughs> thank you and I appreciate you joining us today there's some marvellous top tips here I'm sure uh, we'll be having more conversations in the future